Hello, skeptical historians, and welcome to part two of my episode on Ned Kelly, the last of the Australian bushrangers and one of the most controversial men in our history. If you haven't heard part one yet, you'll need to stop this podcast here and go and have a listen because I pick up right where I left off, but I will be here when you get back. For those of you still with me, we are going to dive right into part two in just a moment. But first, I would like to recognize that I am podcasting today on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people. I acknowledge their continuous connection to country, stretching back over 65,000 years and their timeless traditions of history making in what we now call Victoria. I'd also like to give my usual shout out to Studio 4 at the State Library of Victoria where this episode is being recorded. For more information or to book the studio yourself, please head to www.slv.vic.gov.au. And now we return to Ned Kelly. When we left off last episode, we had just witnessed what would become known as the Fitzpatrick incident, one of the most contentious episodes in the Kelly story. I'm going to give a quick flashback here from last episode, and then I'll be right back. According to Fitzpatrick, events unfolded like this. He arrived at the house and found that Dan wasn't home. He stayed talking to Mrs. Kelly, who wasn't happy to see him and was even less happy about the prospect of her three big sons, as she called Ned, Jim and Dan, being in jail at the same time. Fitzpatrick then left to go and check if a man he could see splitting logs was licensed to do so, which really... Upon finding out that the man was on his own selection and didn't need a license, Fitzpatrick returned to the Kelly house and saw two horsemen approaching. One was Dan Kelly and the other was his brother-in-law, Bill Skilling, the husband of his older sister, Maggie. Fitzpatrick entered the house after Dan and told him he was under arrest. Dan asked to be allowed to have his dinner before going to the lockup and Fitzpatrick agreed. As Dan was finishing his dinner... Ned came bursting into the house, shouting at Fitzpatrick, and fired at him with a revolver. (laughs) Fitzpatrick was hit on the wrist, and Mrs. Kelly, who was boiling with rage at the thought of her children being arrested, picked up a shovel and struck him with it. (laughs) He was lucky not to have been killed. His bobby helmet may very well have saved his life. In the confusion, Dan stole Fitzpatrick's gun and it was apparently only then that Ned realised it was Fitzpatrick in the house. After apologising and insisting that he wouldn't have shot him at all if he'd known who he was, Ned and his family patched Fitzpatrick up, extracted the bullet and told him exactly what he was to tell the police when they asked what had happened and why he was injured. Ned promised to pay him off if he kept to his story and... Mrs. Kelly threatened to kill him if he so much breathed the word of what had really happened. Ned and Dan accompanied him for about a mile before turning back and Fitzpatrick made it to the local hotel once more where he sought help from the publican. His wound was rebandaged and the publican rode with him to Benella, the largest police station in the district, to report what had happened. But the Kelly family told a rather different story. They said that Fitzpatrick was drunk when he arrived at the house and, when told Dan wasn't home, forced his way onto the property and became aggressive and was rude to Mrs Kelly. When Dan did arrive home, Fitzpatrick announced he was going to arrest him and that he had a warrant, but refused to produce it when asked and instead pulled out his gun and threatened the family. Kate Kelly, Dan's younger sister, tried to walk by him And instead, he pulled her into his lap, attempted to kiss her, and touched her inappropriately. This caused Dan to jump on him and Mrs. Kelly to reach for the shovel, the nearest weapon with which she could defend her daughter. Dan knocked Fitzpatrick to the ground and, in the struggle, stole his gun to prevent the police officer doing any harm to the family. In the struggle, the Kellys said, Fitzpatrick struck his wrist against the protruding door lock, and that was how he got his injuries. Ned, they claimed wasn't even there and i'm back now first things first while we often say that the truth lies somewhere in between both sides of two stories 
consider this. Who has the most reason to lie? That's usually a good barometer for working out who has the more likely story in history. In this case, it's very clear. The Kelly family has far more reason to lie than Fitzpatrick, but does that mean Fitzpatrick is automatically telling the truth? No, not at all. It just makes his story more likely. To find the truth, or as close as we can get it, I don't think anyone will ever be able to get to the capital T truth when it comes to the Kelly story. We need to look a little bit deeper. First, let's examine the claim that Fitzpatrick was drunk, and it's become a critical part of the story. Fitzpatrick admitted to stopping at a local hotel and having a glass of brandy and lemonade before going to the Kelly homestead, but that's hardly enough to get an adult man blind drunk, as the Kellys claimed he was when he arrived. Did he have more than he admitted? Well, it's possible, of course, but the publican who served him claimed Fitzpatrick only had had one drink and that he was frightened, not drunk, when he returned later with a wounded arm and asked for assistance. Ned claimed after his capture that the publican was lying about Fitzpatrick not being drunk because he didn't want to get into trouble for selling sly grog. There's one problem with this, and that's that the hotel owner had a liquor license. He could sell all the glasses of brandy and lemonade, or anything else for that matter, that he wanted. The question has been asked as to why Fitzpatrick went to the pub before heading out to arrest Dan, but this wasn't as unusual as it sounds. Today, of course, it wouldn't happen if a police officer was on duty, or it shouldn't happen. But back then, especially in a rural area like Greta, alcohol was probably safer to drink than water. And so if Fitzpatrick was thirsty, heading to the pub for a glass of brandy and lemonade probably wouldn't have been that unusual. What I find so fascinating about this detail is it really should have been meaningless, but it's become the central point of the Fitzpatrick incident. Was Fitzpatrick drunk or was he sober? Ned Kelly and his family would always maintain that Fitzpatrick had been off his face when he arrived at their house. And Mrs. Kelly, too, would stick to that story until her own death. Another witness, however, told a few variations, and that was Catherine Kelly, known as Kate, one of Mrs. Kelly's daughters. Now, Kate was there that night, and that is completely indisputable, and a central plank of the pro-Kelly narrative regarding the Fitzpatrick incident is that Fitzpatrick had tried to indecently assault her at the house. Kate was the first person to make this claim, but very interestingly... She said this was what made both Dan and Ned, along with their mother, attack Fitzpatrick, despite her mother's insistence that Ned hadn't been there at all. She later changed this story, saying that only Dan and her mother had been present, but continued to say until 1880 that the police officer had tried to assault her. For the record, and before I go any further, we are far too quick in modern society to question women and femmes who disclose that they have been sexually assaulted. Women who speak up should be believed and supported, regardless of how powerful or protected the perpetrator might be. Despite wild claims to the contrary, instances of false reports for rape and sex crimes are on par with false reports for other violent crimes, between 1% and 2%. In Kate Kelly's case, however, she would eventually say that she'd made up the story to try and justify her brother's actions because she didn't want them to go to jail. This account would also be corroborated by Ned after his capture and before he knew that Kate had made that claim. He was asked by a journalist while in prison if it was true that Fitzpatrick had assaulted Kate and Ned flatly denied it with the words, no, that is a foolish story. If he or any other policeman tried to take liberties with my sister, Victoria would not hold him. But I can understand why Kate made this claim. One of her older brothers, Jim, was already in jail and the other two were involved in wholesale horse theft and heading the same way. If the three big sons were in prison, there would be no adult men in the house. Kate's father was long dead and her stepfather had recently bolted. Certainly, they had extended family who they could have called upon. 
but there would have been a lot of fear in the Kelly household about what might happen to them if all their men were in prison, suggesting that her brothers had been trying to protect her from a predatory advance, would have garnered sympathy from the public and reflected badly on Fitzpatrick. As mentioned above, though, Kate recanted the claim, and I think we can return to Ned's statement for why it is unlikely that Fitzpatrick, who was certainly not drunk after one glass of brandy and lemonade, tried to assault Kate Kelly. If he had, her brothers would have killed him. The Kelly Lloyd Quinn extended family were generally very protective of their women, from outsiders at least. Unfortunately, there was a lot of domestic violence among them and among others in this area. And Fitzpatrick would not have lived long if he'd been stupid enough to assault Kate Kelly in front of one and possibly two of her brothers. What's more, once word had got out among the extended family that such a thing had happened, if Kate Kelly's brothers didn't get him, one of her uncles or cousins certainly would, and her mother wouldn't have hesitated to kill him either. Kate, in trying to help her brothers, unfortunately put herself in the centre of a story that would haunt her for the rest of her life. But what about Ned? Where was he in all this? Right up until the end of his life, he denied having been there and claimed that he'd heard everything he knew about it from his brother Dan and other sympathisers. Fitzpatrick said Ned had been there and the two men knew each other very well and what's more, Fitzpatrick had absolutely no reason to lie about seeing Ned there if he wasn't. Initial pro-Kelly interpretations took Ned at his word and declared that Fitzpatrick was a liar. But modern Kelly scholars, even those inclined to be sympathetic, now almost unanimously agree that Ned was there that night and that he certainly shot Fitzpatrick. Now, police believed Ned was shearing in New South Wales, but there is actually a lot of evidence that suggests he was home at this point. He was probably on the property doing work for his mother, and one of his much younger half-siblings may have been sent to warn him that there was a policeman in the house. Now, his mother probably wanted him to leave. She knew he was wanted as well, but he decided to go up to the house. And as we'll see later, Ned had a penchant for reckless decisions that would cause a whole lot of trouble. Certainly, entering a small house and firing his gun before he'd taken a good look at the scene was incredibly, incredibly stupid it, it borders on criminally negligent his mother was there his brother three of his siblings under five including a baby and his mother and he could have hit any of them but as for the question of whether he actually wanted to kill Fitzpatrick or just frighten him I really can't say the final aspect of this story that deserves a mention is a claim made by Mrs Kelly that Fitzpatrick didn't have a warrant so Dan didn't need to go with him. It's a claim that's been repeated time and time again by pro-Kelly interpretations, but it's incorrect. True, Fitzpatrick hadn't personally gone to a judge and obtained a warrant for Dan's arrest, but he didn't need to. The warrant had already been issued and printed in the Police Gazette where Fitzpatrick had seen it. He had the authority to arrest Dan. In fact, it could even be argued he had a requirement to arrest Dan given he knew where the young man was and there was a warrant out for him. However, it was a reckless decision for him to go alone, possibly because he had a relationship with the Kellys. He thought it might be easier, but as we've seen, it only ended in disaster. However, on the balance of probabilities, Fitzpatrick's version of events is much more likely. That doesn't mean his story is ironclad by any means, and we're going to have a quick look at that after I get back from this break. Fitzpatrick's story, while more probable, does have a few holes. Namely, on his evidence alone, two innocent people probably spent six years in jail. According to him, after Ned had come bursting into the house and shot at him, two other men also entered with guns drawn. Bricky Williamson, a neighbour of the Kellys, and Bill Skilling, Ellen's son-in-law and the husband of her daughter Maggie. Fitzpatrick also said he'd seen Skilling arrive earlier at the house with Dan, although he didn't come in at the time. I mentioned Williamson briefly last episode. He was the man who was splitting logs on his property who Fitzpatrick went out to ask if he had a license and was annoyed when Williamson pointed out he didn't need one. 
Now, Williamson knew the Kellys quite well, but why would he come bursting into their house with a revolver in the company of one of Mrs. Kelly's son-in-laws who he didn't actually know that well? There's a myriad of possibilities, but there's two that I think are worth examining in detail. First, perhaps Williamson wasn't there at all and Fitzpatrick was lying. It will not surprise you at this point to know that this is the interpretation favoured by the pro-Kelly crowd, but it's got a glaring hole of its own. Fitzpatrick didn't know Williamson very well. In fact, there is no evidence that the pair had done anything more than perhaps pass on the street before Fitzpatrick had come over to ask Williamson if he had a licence to split logs. Fitzpatrick had no reason to implicate someone he barely knew in the affair. Which leads me strongly to suspect that Williamson did enter the house that night and that he was very likely to be armed. Now, while Australia today is very famous for its tough stance and tight restrictions on guns, there were no such laws in 1878 and in a rural area like Greta, which was effectively the edge of civilization at that time, firearms would have been both prevalent and necessary for people working on the land. But if Bricky Williamson did come bursting into the house with a gun, it's now important to examine his intentions. Did he come in wanting to help Ned kill a policeman? At his trial, Williamson was found guilty of attempted murder and sentenced to six years hard labour. But just because he entered the house with a gun, it doesn't automatically follow that he was there to kill Fitzpatrick. The policeman, remember, had been shot by Ned Kelly and smacked on the head with a shovel by Mrs. Kelly and had his gun stolen by Dan Kelly at this point. He was outnumbered, outgunned, badly wounded, and had every reason to believe that the Kellys were going to kill him. When Williamson entered, Fitzpatrick would have understandably been in a state of panic and could have very easily misinterpreted what was happening. As mentioned, Williamson knew the Kelly family and he would have heard the commotion at the house, including the shots fired as the Kellys attacked Fitzpatrick. And far from going over there to help them murder a policeman, I think it's far more likely that he went over there to check on the family and may very well have bought his gun for self-defense. Fitzpatrick, badly injured and afraid, may have seen Williamson come in and misinterpreted what was happening. Williamson, of course, was probably mildly annoyed with Fitzpatrick for asking him for a license to split posts when he didn't need one, but I don't think he actually wanted to kill him. Barely knew him, after all. As for the second man Fitzpatrick implicated, a man named Bill Skilling, Ned and Dan's brother-in-law, there's actually a really serious question as to whether he was there at all, and in this, Fitzpatrick may have been mistaken. The man with Dan Kelly, who Fitzpatrick took to be skilling, was probably another man named Joe Byrne. Byrne was a good friend of Ned's and one of the men involved in the wholesale horse thieving ring I talked about last episode. Like the Kellys, he was from a large, poor Irish Catholic family that had settled in the area. His family was not as deeply involved in organised crime as the Kelly Lloyd Quinn group. But the Burns weren't saints, and Joe's brother Patrick, who was known in the district as Paddy, had a very well-deserved reputation for being an incredibly violent man. Uh, his older brother, Joe, also had a violent streak, and this wasn't helped by the fact that Byrne was an opium addict either. Now, Byrne didn't have the same kind of convictions for violent assault that his younger brother did or that his friend Ned did. But this may have been because a lot of his violence was directed quite horribly at his family. He seriously injured one of his sisters by hitting her around the face with a bridle after she laughed at him one day. And his youngest sister recalled in interviews towards the end of her life that neither her nor any of her older sisters had liked being in the house alone with him because he was known to have an explosive temper. Byrne knew Ned Kelly very well and would have had every reason to come bursting into the house when Ned started firing. And if it came to killing Fitzpatrick, he was the kind of man who would absolutely do so. And without a second's hesitation, and he had backed Ned up in more than one fight over the years. It's also significant that Byrne went on the run with Ned and Dan Kelly immediately after the Fitzpatrick incident, 
rather than joining up with them later, as the fourth member of the Kelly gang would, but more on that shortly. Bill Skilling claimed that he had been home when the Fitzpatrick incident occurred, and that makes sense. His wife had just recently had a baby, and he had a property to try and manage. He was dealing with all the same issues on the land I talked about last episode that plague selectors, and interestingly, he wasn't involved in the horse-stealing ring his brother-in-law had set up. So he had no reason to be at the Kelly house that night. Joe Byrne, on the other hand, was not only involved, but was known to be in the district and had been staying with the Kellys. All his life, Bill Skilling claimed he wasn't at the Kelly house that night. And there were witnesses who could prove that. But Fitzpatrick's evidence was given more weight and Skilling was sentenced to six years hard labour. Halfway through his sentence, he was offered parole if he corroborated Fitzpatrick's version of events, but he refused, saying he hadn't been in the house and he wasn't going to lie. Williamson was offered the same deal and initially took it, but then reneged and decided he'd rather serve out the rest of his sentence than agree that he'd been trying to kill Fitzpatrick. He did, however, maintain that Ned Kelly had been present And he also supported Bill Skilling in saying Bill hadn't been there and he didn't know the other man who had entered just behind him. On the evidence, it's very likely that Skilling wasn't there and that Williamson, despite being present, didn't enter with the intention of killing Fitzpatrick. Both men were released at the end of their sentences and faded into relative obscurity. Williamson returned to his property and actually did very well for himself. He became quite wealthy running sheep, although he generally lived a rather nondescript life. However, Skilling left the district after he served his sentence. While he was in prison, his wife Maggie had begun a relationship with her cousin Tom Lloyd, and we know that Maggie visited her husband in prison, and presumably she told him this because they quickly divorced when he was released and Skilling left the district never to return. The Kelly family blamed Fitzpatrick for all this. But is it Fitzpatrick's fault or was it the fault of a legal system that was highly prejudiced and placed more weight on the word of a frightened, wounded police officer than on other witnesses? I don't blame Fitzpatrick for giving this evidence, and he was telling what he believed was the truth. He didn't know Skilling or Williamson very well, and that is troubling, but he honestly thought he saw them. The other person convicted for the attempted murder of Constable Alexandra Fitzpatrick was Mrs. Ellen Kelly, who alone of the three people convicted actually did cause harm to him. She struck him on the head with a shovel, And had he not been wearing his helmet, he may very well have been killed. She was sentenced to three years hard labour, which the bench considered to be appropriate, due to her being a widow with young dependent children. However, to these children, with 14-year-old Kate Kelly being the oldest, followed by her sister Grace, who was 10, and two of the Kelly King children, who were both under five, and baby Alice, who was in prison with her mother, it would have been utterly terrifying. Their mother was in jail, along with one of their older brothers. Their other two older brothers were on the run. Maggie moved into her mother's house after Ellen was sentenced to take care of her siblings, along with Tom Lloyd, although the loss of their mother would have been especially hard, particularly on the little ones. When Ellen was released from prison in 1881, John, Ellen Jr. and Alice, her three youngest children, and actually didn't know who she was, which I think is really quite sad. And where were they Dan and all this? Well, they were hiding out in the Wombat Ranges, a mountain range near Mansfield, where they made money by panning for gold and distilling illegal whiskey, which they said they were going to use to help fund their mother's trial. Joe Byrne was with them, and they were being supplied with provisions and information by their families, including Tom Lloyd, who was very close to Ned and went up to the Wombat Ranges so regularly that several times police tried to have him followed. Each time, Lloyd either shook them off or deliberately led them on a wild goose chase. However, Ned and Dan Kelly were wanted for the attempted murder of a policeman and the Victoria police were determined to bring them in. And unfortunately, 
things were about to get a whole lot worse. I'm going to take another break here. And when I return, we're going to discuss what happened over the next few fateful weeks. Because very soon, Kelly wasn't just wanted for attempted murder. He was wanted for murder. And I'm back. The police had a rough idea where the Kellys were and very quickly realised that Tom Lloyd knew the country too well to be followed if he didn't want to be, and that when he did want to be followed, it was only to lead them up the creek. Getting frustrated and under pressure from those higher up the ranks, police started sending out search parties. One such party was led by Sergeant Michael Kennedy and consisted of three other men, Constable Scanlon, Lonigan, and McIntyre. They had horses, a tent, and provisions for eight days and were heavily armed. According to some, they not only brought firearms with them, but they were also loaded with special straps, which could be used to sling bodies over either side of a pack horse to make them easier to carry. They didn't go up to the Wombat Rangers to arrest the Kellys, their sympathizers say. They went up there to kill them. Let's pause here, as we have so often done in this story, and look at the facts as objectively as possible. Kennedy and his search party were looking for the Kellys. What had started with Fitzpatrick going to arrest Dan for horse stealing had devolved into four policemen going to arrest Ned and Dan for attempted murder. They had brought rather a lot of firepower, not just their standard issue pistols, but they had hunting rifles, a shotgun, and a state-of-the-art Spencer repeating rifle too. But they intended to be out in the Wombat Ranges for a while, and they wanted to supplement their provisions by hunting. Also, they were looking for two very dangerous men. They knew there was likely to be violence when they attempted to arrest the Kellys. They knew that the two men were unlikely to come without a fight. There was every possibility that Ned and Dan would resist arrest and that they'd become violent and shots would be exchanged with potentially deadly consequences. Having straps to make it easier for a horse to carry a body back down the mountain makes perfect sense to me. It doesn't mean they were an execution squad. It means they were prepared for what was probably a likely outcome. But I do also have to note that there's scant evidence beyond later claims by Kelly supporters that the police even had those straps, but it's become such a part of the narrative that I feel I have to mention it. But they were probably feeling pretty confident that if it came to violence, they had the upper hand. But was violence on the officers' minds? It was a possibility that they would have all been aware of and prepared for, but Sergeant Kennedy, the leader of the search party, was a rather unique man in Victoria Police. At a time when corruption, violence and prejudice dominated policing, and the central idea was that police were there to keep people in line, Michael Kennedy stood apart from that. He was part of a small but growing cohort of officers who believed that the best way to stop crime was to work with communities and to emphasize prevention and rehabilitation where possible. Police were most effective, he believed, when they were trusted, when people felt they could come to them for help, and when people believed they would be heard by the law. He was also a compassionate and understanding man who generally believed in treating people with kindness and respect. In fact, he was a good person, a good man, and a good police officer. He could be hard when he needed to be, and those who constantly flouted the law, or particularly who did harm to others, were liable to feel his wrath. But he wasn't the type of man to head out into the bush at the front of an execution squad. I don't believe his first thoughts were to shoot the Kellys on sight either, as has been claimed by some of the pro-Kelly brigade. If it came to it, if he and his men were threatened or fired on, he would shoot to defend himself or the lives of the officers who he felt responsible for. But the idea that his plan was to blow Ned to smithereens? Hell no. What Kennedy wanted, I believe, was to capture Ned and Dan and to bring them back to be tried for the attempted murder of a fellow police officer. But if it did come to violence, they had the upper hand. After all, they thought, they outnumbered the Kellys two to one. 
What the police didn't know at this point is that there were four men up in the Wombat Ranges that day. Joe Byrne, the violent friend of Ned's I've already mentioned, had gone into hiding with Ned and Dan immediately after the brothers had escorted Fitzpatrick back to Benella. Um, as discussed, he was probably there that night and so had reason to go on the run. But the fourth man, Steve Hart, why he decided to come along is really anyone's guess. He was a very good friend of Dan's. He was known for his flashy horsemanship and had ridden as a jockey occasionally in the races at Wangaratta. Decades after his death, elderly locals would recall that he was the only person in town who could jump his horse over the high railway gates. Why he was there really isn't important to our story. It could have been bad luck. He may have been one of the sympathizers bringing provisions and news to the fugitives and got caught up in what came next. He might have been a reckless young man looking for adventure. Dan might have asked him to come and join them. We really don't know, and it doesn't matter. What is important is that Kennedy and his men thought they were tracking two men, but hiding out of the Wombat Ranges were four. That means the odds were not as much in the police officer's favour as they might have initially believed. Critically, the police also had the most appalling bad luck as they set up camp near Stringybark Creek at a site Kennedy was familiar with and knew would be a good base for them. Unknown to the officers, they were only two and a half kilometres from the Kellys' camp and they'd been spotted. Ned and Dan had been watching them all afternoon and later Joe Byrne came back and reported that another party of police were at the other end of the creek meaning their two easiest escape routes were blocked off. At this point, I want to make it clear that the two easiest escape routes were blocked off by police. The Kellys, Byrne and Hart knew the area very well, and there were other ways out of their camp that didn't involve confronting the police. But Ned decided a fight was in order. It seems his violent streak and his long hatred of police had finally got the better of him. And just like his reckless decision to come charging into his house, firing at Alexander Fitzpatrick, this decision was to have deadly consequences. By the end of the day, three of the four policemen would be dead. And Ned Kelly, along with his friends and his brother, would be the most wanted men in Victoria. The date was the 26th of October, 1878. Fair warning before I continue, as you may have guessed, this next part of the podcast deals with murder, so if that's not something you want to listen to, you might want to skip ahead a little. For those still with me, I'm taking the following information from the testimony and depositions of Constable Thomas McIntyre, who survived what became known as the Stringy Bark Creek Murder or the Stringy Bark Creek Massacre. Despite attempts over the years by the pro-Kelly lobby to suggest that McIntyre was an unreliable witness or a perjurer who changed his testimony to ensure Ned Kelly was hanged, he was nothing of the sort. He was a steady, reliable officer whose story remained consistent with only slight changes each time he told it. According to psychologists, this is actually a sign of a functioning memory as the more often we tell a story, the more about it we tend to remember, adding small details each time. On the morning of the 26th, the party of police split up. McIntyre and Lonergan stayed at the campsite, while Kennedy and Scanlon went to scout around the area. Unknown to them, they were being watched by the four men who would become known ever after as the Kelly Gang. Nothing happened at the camp until about five o'clock that evening when McIntyre was plucking some birds for dinner and he and Lonigan heard a sudden call. Bail up! Hold up your hands! At first, the two police thought Kennedy and Scanlon were back and were playing a trick on them until they saw four armed men advancing from the bush holding rifles. In an act that probably saved his life, McIntyre threw up his hands and prayed he wouldn't be shot. Lonigan, on the other hand, tried to make it to cover and attempted to draw his own gun. Under the laws of the time and those still in effect today, Lonigan was legally empowered to fire on the Kellys. They were threatening his life and the life of his colleague. And 
Unfortunately, it was a threat that Ned and the others were prepared to make good on. According to McIntyre, all four of the Kelly gang fired and Lonigan exclaimed that he'd been hit and then Ned shot him through the head. <laughs> Constable Thomas Lonigan was 34 years old and a married father of four. His wife was pregnant with their fifth child and she would have a miscarriage later on being told the terrible news. Ned Kelly would maintain until his dying day that he had fired in self-defence, but this is such a ridiculous claim that to give it any serious consideration is an insult to Constable Thomas Lonigan's memory. Ned pointed a gun at Lonigan, and it was Lonigan who made an attempt at self-defence. For the next hour, the surviving Constable McIntyre was interrogated by Ned and Joe, while Dan and Steve watched for the return of the other two policemen and stole the firearms that were around the camp. At about six o'clock, Kennedy and Scanlon returned. McIntyre, who was being held at gunpoint, tried to get the two officers to surrender and Ned stepped out and ordered them to bail up once again. However, once again, for a brief moment, the two men think Lonigan and McIntyre are playing a joke on them, which... I do want to pause here and wonder why police would play jokes like that on each other. Clearly, it was a thing, and it was a thing that had dangerous consequences. And because Kennedy and Scanlon think it's a joke, they ignore it. Scanlon continues to dismount, and Kennedy, still mounted, reaches playfully for his gun. McIntyre would say later that in that second, he was sure they were all going to die. Ned fired a shot over the heads of Kennedy and Scanlon and it was at this point that they realised it wasn't a joke and they really had been surrounded. The three other Kelly gang members jumped out of hiding, also armed, and began to fire. Scanlon had the repeating rifle and tried to unsling it but was hampered by his horse which was panicking with all the sound of the gunfire and shot at him. Joe burst Scanlon in the side under the arm and the constable fell off his horse mortally wounded and he died there. He was unmarried but he left behind friends and extended family who would mourn him for the rest of their lives. Movingly, shortly before heading out to arrest the Kellys, he had asked a friend to take care of his dog until he got back and promised to look after him if there was, as Scanlon called it, bad trouble. As far as I can tell, this wish was honoured and the dog was well looked after until the end of his days. During the confrontation, Kennedy had swung into action. He had managed to draw his revolver and return fire, but his mount panicked and he fell off his horse and had to take cover behind a tree. McIntyre had also seized his chance. He managed to get up on Scanlon's horse and had galloped away. Joe Byrne fired several shots after him but missed and McIntyre rode long into the night, terrified that he was being pursued and sure that any moment his horse was going to trip and break its neck on the uneven ground. He eventually reached a farmhouse where he was able to tell the whole terrifying story and the trauma of Stringybark Creek would haunt him for the rest of his life. And there is some evidence that he developed what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder. This is not entirely surprising. He saw two of his fellows shot. He was held captive and interrogated by a gang of murderers for over an hour in sight of his colleague's dead body. And he would later discover that Kennedy too had been killed. He had every reason to believe in those hours that the Kelly gang was going to kill him, just like they'd killed Lonigan and Scanlon, and his actions saved his life. Some have derided him for running away, but McIntyre was no coward. He was unarmed. He was outnumbered. He couldn't do anything for Kennedy. Staying and going down in a blaze of glory would have done absolutely nothing. But back at Stringybark Creek, Kennedy was running and fighting for his life. Joe Byrne and Steve Hart had attempted to chase down McIntyre while the Kelly brothers were chasing Kennedy, who was still shooting at them as he was dodging behind trees. Whatever his thoughts may have been when he returned to the campsite, what he wanted to do now was survive. Kennedy had a pregnant wife and five children at home in Mansfield, and he wanted to get back to them. And the chase lasted for almost a kilometre 
before Kennedy was hit in the side and went down. Now, warning, this is quite disturbing. He was not mortally wounded. If the Kellys had got him help, he would have survived. But instead of doing anything to help, Ned and Dan interrogated the wounded policeman for two hours. They didn't even try and stop the bleeding. And they are interrogating him while he's bleeding to death. Now, eventually, night closes in and Steve and Joe come back and tell the Kelly brothers that McIntyre has escaped. And Ned decides it's way too dangerous to stay at Stringy Bark Creek. Kennedy is still alive and Ned, in what he will disturbingly and despicably claim was an act of mercy, shoots him in the chest at point-blank range. Then the gang departs. In Mansfield, when his beloved wife is told her 36-year-old husband is dead, she, like Mrs. Lonigan, loses the baby she was carrying. The Kelly gang, in an act of needless barbarity, have killed three men, widowed two young mothers, stolen the fathers from nine children, and have left a gaping hole in the community of Mansfield. And the ripple effects are still being felt to this day among their descendants. Now, I need to take a break. That's an awful story to tell, but it's one that deserves to be told. And I'll be back in a moment. Before we move on, skeptics, I do want to make a few things abundantly clear. Ned Kelly, of course, told very different stories to the one I have used here. My telling is based on Constable McIntyre's testimony at Ned's trial, the Royal Commission into Policing, and his reports, which are available at the Police Museum or at the Public Records Office. McIntyre didn't see Kennedy killed, and the only version of events we have is Ned's, although I have tried where possible to use evidence collected after the fact, such as from the autopsy and the crime scene reports, rather than rely on Ned's recollections. Ned Kelly was one of those infuriating people who made sure everyone knew that nothing was their fault. I'm sure you've met a few of them yourself. However, there's a difference between whining about the police harassing you for stealing horses and claiming you were acting in self-defense after shooting police officers, only one of who had time to draw a gun. I also want to make it plain that just because Kennedy was firing does not justify Ned and Dan giving chase with their own guns. The Kelly gang had fired at Kennedy. They'd killed two of his officers, and he had both legal and moral right on his side. By the time he died, he was facing odds of four to one, and rather than get him help, the Kelly gang spent hours questioning him and then murdered him. These are not the actions of men who had no choice or who were acting in self-defense. To add insult to murder, it would be revealed later that Ned Kelly had stolen Sergeant Kennedy's watch after killing him. But for the rest of his short life, Ned would refuse to take any responsibility for what I think amounts to the cold-blooded murders of Lonigan and Kennedy and would maintain until his dying breath that they were responsible for their own deaths. If they just surrendered, he claimed, neither of them would have been shot. Ned might have believed this, but I think it's worth noting that the Kelly gang tried to kill McIntyre, who had surrendered, and who was unarmed and fleeing at the time they shot at him, and neither Lonigan or Scanlon had had time to draw their guns before they were shot. Ned didn't shoot Scanlon himself, although not for lack of trying, and Joe Byrne didn't live long enough to face justice for mortally wounding the policeman. Some people have argued that Dan Kelly and Steve Hart, who didn't kill anyone, bear less responsibility, but I'm not so sure. All that can be said for them is they were much younger. Dan was 17 and Steve was 19, but they actively fired on the police officers as well, and it was luck, luck, not good management, that meant they didn't kill anyone themselves. Like Ned and Joe, they were aiming to kill, and Steve helped Joe pursue an unarmed McIntyre as the constable rode for his life, firing at him as he galloped away. Ned and Joe fired the killing shots, it's true, 
but Dan and Steve were active participants. The bodies were recovered and McIntyre was able to lead others to them and all three officers were buried with full honours. Their names are also on the police memorial on St Kilda Road and I visited their graves in the Mansfield Cemetery. Their gravestones were all erected by the Victorian Parliament and I'll read you the inscription on Kennedy's. Scanlon and Lonigan's are very similar. So it reads... Erected by the Parliament of Victoria to the memory of Police Sergeant Michael Kennedy, native of Westmeath Island, aged 36 years, who was cruelly murdered by armed criminals in the Wombat Ranges near Mansfield on the 26th of October 1878. He died in the service of his country, of which he was an ornament, highly respected by all good citizens and a terror to evildoers. And all I can say to that is here, here. Listeners, I would like to ask you to join me now in a minute's silence in memory of Sergeant Michael Kennedy and to the memories of Constable Thomas Lonigan and Michael Scanlon. This episode will continue in a moment. Thank you. If you are ever in the area of Mansfield, it's very close to Mount Buller. So if you are ever holidaying in the snow, you'll be nearby. I'd encourage you to visit their graves yourself and pay your respects. They're buried in the Mansfield General Cemetery. So what happened next? As you can imagine, desire to catch the Kelly gang was now at an all-time high. And the Victorian government quickly passed legislation outlawing them, which meant they could be shot on sight without challenge by anyone who found them armed or who had reason to believe they were armed. This was a popular move, but ultimately symbolic. It played no role in capturing the gang and they continued to be supplied with provisions and information by their friends and family, despite the act making this a crime. Several people were arrested and held without trial as Kelly sympathizers over this time, but eventually judges refused to continue to issue remands. This was not necessarily a sign of support for the Kellys, but people were becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the general assault on civil liberties of people who police admitted they couldn't prove had committed a crime, and many of whom hadn't committed a crime at all. Now, according to data from the United States, fugitives on the run stay free for an average of 1.67 years or about 20 months. The Kelly gang did slightly better than the average and weren't caught for two years, but this probably had more to do with the location they were in, the amount of support they had, and it has to be said, some very incompetent policing by men who were much more interested in the glory of being involved in hunting the Kellys than, you know, actually catching them. However, not all police were fools, and there were several very near misses over the next two years, with the Kellys usually being warned just in the nick of time and avoiding capture by luck rather than good management. Eventually, however, they ran low on funds and decided the best way to solve this problem would be to rob a bank. The Kellys actually committed two bank robberies over the two years they were at large, and both followed the same pattern. During the first raid, which was at a town called Euroa, the Kellys scoped out the town and discovered that there would be a sitting of the licensing court and a funeral on the same Tuesday afternoon, so the town would be mostly empty. 
They then held up a homestead nearby and took the homeowners and staff hostage before three of them rode into Euroa and cut the telegraph wires. On the way, they met a hunting party and a gang of railway workers who they also kidnapped and took to the homestead. After being provided with clothes from an associate they'd hidden among the hostages, three of the gang went into town and knocked on the doors of the bank, which was closing, and they were admitted, probably because they looked at this point like respectable gentlemen. However, as soon as they were inside, they drew revolvers and had the manager and his staff empty the safe and the cashier's drawers. The bank workers were then taken back to the station with the other hostages. In total, the Kelly gang stole £2,260, which is around 630000 Australian dollars today, and then they left the station. They ordered their hostages to stay put for three hours or there would be dangerous reprisals. Now, I cannot imagine the trauma and terror that would have been felt by these people during an ordeal that lasted most of the day. The Kellys didn't kill anyone, but they were very menacing. They cocked their revolvers at anyone who didn't follow their orders fast enough and several times threatened to burn down the buildings where the hostages were being held if people started asking questions or speaking without being spoken to. The Kelly Gang's second raid in the New South Wales town of Gerildery followed much the same pattern, although they got a little bit more audacious. After ascertaining that there were only two police in the border town, because the rest had been sent to Victoria to hunt them, they bailed up the police station and took two police officers hostage, who they then imprisoned in their own lockup. The gang then went next door to the home of the senior officer and made themselves comfortable, taking his wife and children hostage in the process. The next day, wearing stolen police uniforms, they held up a hotel next to the bank and then followed much the same pattern as they had at Euroa. They entered just as the bank was closing, had the safes and drawers emptied at gunpoint, and then took the bank staff back to the hotel with the rest of their hostages. This time they stole slightly less, £2,141, which is about 627000 Australian dollars. And this time they made their hostages do the work of cutting the telegraph wires and, for good measure, chopping down the telegraph poles as well. These two raids happened about three months apart and are where the Robin Hood mythos around the Kelly gang had its genesis. They did give some money to their friends, family and sympathisers, but Poverty was still the norm among their people, and in the 17 months between the Gerildery raid and when the gang made their final fateful stand at Glenrowan, they were seen at places such as the races and the theatre and sporting fine new clothes. Clearly, they were spending the stolen money on themselves first before giving it to their desperately poor families. The other issue with the idea that they were Robin Hood-type figures is that all kinds of people keep their money in banks. They're not merely the preserve of the rich, and the Kelly gang took everything during both raids. Among those thousands of pounds would have been people's entire life savings, their wages, their ability to pay rent and buy food. These were not discriminating robberies which only targeted people who could afford it. Not that anyone deserves to be robbed, by the way. They were all in cash grabs. Not to mention the trauma that would have haunted many of their hostages for the rest of their lives, including the wife of the senior constable who the gang treated like a servant while they made themselves comfortable in her home and threatened the lives of her children if she didn't work fast enough. It was vile behavior and it was only going to get worse. I'm going to take another break here. And when I get back, we're going to examine the final chapter in this very bloody legacy. It's romantically known as The Last Stand. And if you know anything about Ned Kelly, it's the moment he walked out of the bush at Glenrowan wearing his infamous suit of armour. Glenrowan is a small country town in Victoria's northeast. I visited there a few years ago with my family. On the 28th of June, 1880, the Kelly gang were in Glenrowan. 
They'd taken over the local Glenrowan Inn, owned by a woman named Anne Jones, and had forced railway workers to rip up a section of track by a steep embankment. They were expecting a special police train. And this, this is the point where I really struggle with the idea that Ned is some kind of glorious anti-hero. That's a terrorist attack. He has ripped up a section of track that he knows a police train will be coming through to send it down a steep embankment to kill as many people as possible. In his own words, his plan was to send the train to hell. It stops becoming hard and starts to become disturbing to believe that this is some kind of wronged man. He would later claim, after he'd been presented with his remarks about sending the train to hell, that really all he'd wanted to do was capture a senior police officer and exchange them for his mother. But come on, it's mass murder. It's terrorism. This is not robbing banks. This is not shooting at police in the woods. Planned mass murder. That would have worked had it not been for a civilian, a school teacher named Thomas Kernow, who alerted the driver of the train before disaster struck. And back at the inn, something else was happening. The police had received intelligence that Ned and his gang had made bulletproof armour using plowshares, but they thought this was so preposterous that they actually sacked the informer. They reached the Glen Rowan Inn on foot because they couldn't take their train and proceeded to surround it. They called on the gang to surrender. Instead, the four gang members stepped out onto the veranda. All of them are. I'll post a photo of the armour on my Instagram, but if you live in Australia or have visited, you've probably seen it before. Cylindrical helmets with breastplates and shoulder plates, although there was no leg armour at all. What happened next has often been described as a kind of Wild West shootout, but really few people were killed, although some were, and there weren't too many injuries either. Three hostages were killed by police fire as the police and gang were shooting at each other, and one police officer was badly shot in the arm. Ned and Joe were shot, Ned in the hand and Joe in the leg, although Dan and Steve were not injured in this first volley of shots. As the shooting was going on, someone screamed from the inn that there were women and children in the building and there was a lull. And during that lull, many of the hostages managed to escape from the hotel. Now, there were so many women and children in the building because the Kellys had been using this as their place to hold their hostages, like the home at Yeroa or the hotel in Gerildery. And there were about 62 hostages uh, by the time the shooting began. Now, after most of the hostages had escaped, most, not all, the firing began again and more and more police began to arrive. They surrounded the hotel and things started to go badly. Ned, who had been shot quite badly actually, got out of the hotel and hid in the bush and some of his clothes were actually found by police shortly after, although it was too dark for them to look closely for him. And Joe Byrne, Steve Hart and Dan Kelly were still firing from inside the hotel. At about five o'clock in the morning, Joe Byrne was fatally shot through the groin uh, by either a lucky shot or there is claim by multiple police that they fired that shot and they aimed. But unfortunately, we'll never know. This left Dan and Steve inside the inn. By this point, Ned was furious. His plan had failed. He was going to either die here or be taken back to Melbourne and hanged. 
His friend was dead. His brother was trapped inside a hotel. And so he donned his armor, draped his coat around his shoulders and stood up in the mist for all the world like a devil or a bunyip or old Nick himself, as some of the officers claimed. A journalist who was present gave the following quote, which I think is quite evocative. With steam rising from the ground, it looked for all the world like the ghost of Hamlet's father, with no head, only a very long, thick neck. It was the most extraordinary sight I ever saw or read of it in my life, and I felt fairly spellbound with wonder, and I could not stir or speak. Now, this would have been a terrifying sight, so I really can't blame the journalist for being frozen with fear. Kelly was armed with three handguns, um, although he had difficulty aiming, firing, and reloading because there wasn't really much room to see through his helmet, and he was eventually captured after being shot further by police where he was then taken to a railway car and received treatment. He would eventually be taken back to Melbourne, put on trial for the murder of, sorry, the murders of Constable Lonergan and Scanlon. But what happened to Dan and Steve? Dan saw Ned get caught and rushed out onto the veranda and started firing either trying to shoot the police who had got him or trying to shoot Ned so he wasn't taken alive. There was a lull, and then later Dan and Steve started firing again, and they kept up too much of a heavy fire for police to actually be able to go into the inn and try and capture them. By this point also, lots of Kelly sympathizers had arrived. All three of Dan's sisters, Maggie, Kate, and Grace were there. Steve's brother, Richard Hart, and some other of his family. Joe Burns' brother, Paddy, and some of their family, along with a large selection of Lloyds and Quinns. They were all dressed for a celebration. So whatever the Kellys had been planning to do, once they derailed that police train, clearly it was something their friends and family thought was going to be worth celebrating. The police decided the best way to get Dan and Steve out of the hotel would be to set it on fire. By this point, Dan and Steve had stopped shooting, although they'd refused to come out, and the police on the scene didn't know where they were, if they were still there, if they were still armed or what was happening. So they set fire to the building. The hotel was a wooden structure with a thatched roof and it went up like anything. Now this is all happening in front of Dan and Steve's families. They were absolutely terrified. There was lots of shouting, lots of yelling. Steve Hart's brother got very violent until a Catholic priest, Father Gibney, rushed into the building, attempting to try and save the men inside. Instead, he discovered the body of Joe Byrne, who had been shot earlier, and the body was able to be recovered. And he also saw the bodies of Dan Kelly and Steve Hart. We don't know when they died. We don't know how they died. The most likely explanation is that they both committed suicide. However, Dan and Steve's bodies were not able to be recovered, although they were seen during the fire. And it wasn't until the fire died out that they were able to pull those bodies out. They were just charred stumps. Someone took little Grace Kelly away so she didn't have to see it. And when the police tried to take custody of the charred remains, there actually looked like there might be a fight uh, because the Kellys and the Hearts wanted them. And there were enough of them that the police there decided he was not having a fight over charred stumps and handed over the bodies. Joe Byrne's body was taken to Benella rather quickly before his family could get their hands on it. They asked for it, but police decided instead to quickly bury it in an unmarked grave. This was criticised later by the Royal Commission, who said that the family had had the right to the body, given that Byrne had not been convicted of any crime and it should have been returned. 
It was later exhumed, as I understand, and was returned to his descendants. Dan Kelly and Steve Hart were taken to Greta, where their families buried them, and they are in unmarked graves. Due to the fact that nobody saw them die and that the bodies that were recovered were utterly unidentifiable, and I will put some pictures up so you can see what I'm talking about, there has been speculation ongoing for years and years that they didn't die. And numerous people over time have claimed that they are Dan Kelly or Steve Hart. It's highly unlikely. There was nowhere for them to go by the time they stopped firing where they wouldn't have run into police. Their faces were known. Even if they'd taken off their armour, they would have still been recognised and captured. Ned stood trial for the murders of Lonergan and Scanlon and was convicted of the murder of Lonergan as there wasn't enough evidence to charge him with the murder of Scanlon. As we've seen already, Joe Byrne shot Michael Scanlon. When Ned was convicted and sentenced to death and Judge Redmond Barry issued those famous words, may God have mercy on your soul, Ned replied infamously, I will go a little further than that and say, I will see you there where I go. In a rather haunting coincidence, Sir Redmond Barry, one of Melbourne's foremost citizens, founder of the Public Library, the Mechanics Institute, the University of Melbourne, and all round good, upstanding, upright citizen, would die 12 days after Kelly's execution from long-term complications from diabetes. So make of that what you will. Thanks for listening. As always, you can get in touch with me at my website, www.skepticalhistory.com. That's skeptical with a K. Or on social media, I am Juliana Byers on both LinkedIn and Instagram. Drop in, say hi, give a tip. I'm always open. The Skeptical Historian is researched, hosted and produced by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in researching by going to my website and clicking on Sources. Sound effects by Adobe Creative Cloud, used under the Adobe Software License Agreement. Pixabay, used under a Creative Commons 4.0 International License. And Epidemic Sound, used under an Epidemic Sound Individual License. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was also used under this license. Podcast hosting is by rss.com. See you next time, skeptics. <laughs>